Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 7. I'm going to do two, cover two incidents in Jesus' Galilean ministry. In verses 1 through 10, we're going to cover the healing of the centurion's, centurion's servant at Capernaum. This is paralleled quite nicely in Matthew 8, 5 through 13. I'm going to, I'm going to splice in my discussion of Matthew 8, 5 through 13. I am then going to finish up this audio with a discussion of the raising of the widow of Nain's son. That will take us down to Luke chapter 7, verse 17. So now let me splice in Matthew 8, my discussion in Matthew 8, 5 through 13 of the healing of the centurion's servant at Capernaum. That splice, that audio begins now. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, when he entered Capernaum, remember Capernaum is his base of operations, his new hometown, a centurion came to him pleading with him. A centurion, Capernaum was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. The Roman, uh, he had moved there after coming from Nazareth, his hometown. A centurion was a Roman military officer who was in charge of 100 soldiers. Now, there's an interesting situation with the parallel in Luke chapter 7 verses 1 through 5. These verses say this in Luke, when he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. I'm assuming that the Roman official, the centurion lived in Capernaum also. So the Jewish official, the, the, the centurion sent some Jewish elders to come and save the life of the slave. So there were some intermediaries coming to ask Jesus. When they, the Jewish elders, came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built up, built us our synagogue. Matthew, in reporting this, doesn't mention the Jewish intermediaries. Matthew just says, When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him. Matthew just leaves out, the intermediaries, that does not mean there's a contradiction in the Bible. It just means that one detail was left out. What did the centurion ask? Chapter, verses 6 through 8. And saying, the centurion saying this, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, why did the centurion say I'm not worthy? He was a big shot Roman official. Why did he say he wasn't worthy? Well, it could be because according to rabbinical law, he was a Gentile and Gentiles would ceremonially defile a house by entering a Gentile's house. So if Jesus went to the Gentile's house, he would defile himself. And so the centurion didn't want Jesus to do that. Or it could be he just felt he was morally guilty in the presence of Jesus, which is a more serious thing. And I think that's what it is myself is that he just felt that this man was so awesome, so majestic. His teaching was so sublime, and his miracles were so powerful. He just felt in awe of him, felt like he was not worthy for the, for the man to come down there. Showed a lot of humility, this centurion did, as well as a lot of faith. Now, the centurion obviously cared a lot for this slave, and one of the parallel passages says he thought highly of him. He was a man of faith, as I just said. He loved Israel. He built a synagogue, as it says in Luke chapter 7, verse 5. And so he wanted that slave to get healed. That shows that a lot of times personal personal uh, bonds grow up between people in diverse social status, statuses. He loved that slave, and he wanted him healed. He said the slave was tormented, paralyzed and tormented. Now, it's probably emotionally tormented because a paralyzed person is not going to feel pain because he's paralyzed. 
but he was probably tormented in his mind. Think about what it's like to be paralyzed in that society. You don't have handicapped parking places. You're basically left to beg. Verse 7, the centurion says, uh, Jesus says, I will come and heal him. Now, Jesus didn't eventually come upon seeing the centurion's faith. Now, here's a question. This question always comes up when you're talking about Jesus as he operates here. Is he doing, is he operating now as human or as divine? If he's divine, he's omniscient. He wouldn't need, he wouldn't say he was going to come because he would know in advance that, that the centurion would say, heal him from where you are, and he would have done it. He would know the future. But he didn't. He said, I will come and heal him, which means he's operating as a man because he didn't realize what the centurion was going to say later that, hey, don't come to my house. Jesus said, I will come. The centurion said, don't come. Well, Jesus would have known that, so he wouldn't have said, I will come, if he knew the centurion was going to say, don't come, if Jesus was acting in his, uh, out of his divine nature. But here he's acting as a human. This always comes up. Is Jesus acting as, a, as, as God? Is he acting as a human being? Or is he acting as a human being under the power of the Holy Spirit, with the aid of the Holy Spirit? And theologians love to debate, toss that around a lot. Now, some people say, no, nah, he knew what the centurion would say. He was just testing him. Ah, he, that, he was acting as humanity. Now, he called him Lord. The centurion called Jesus as Lord. Adam Clark says that should be translated as sir. He's not addressing Jesus as God yet because Kyrie, the Greek word, should always be translated as sir when a Roman is the speaker. Perhaps so. But at any rate, the centurion showed a lot of faith in this man who could heal him at a distance. The centurion was different when he took him home, the slave home. Many people took paralyzed patients like that and send them to a workhouse or to an infirmary or to friends and relatives. And this was not even a relative of the centurion. This was a slave of the centurion, and he took him home to, to nurse him, to look after him. The centurion continues in chapter 9, verse, verses 9 and 10. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, I assure you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. Jesus turned around and spoke to his disciples who were following him. A teaching moment. As our beloved ex-president used to say, Barack Obama, a teaching moment. A teaching moment. I assure you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. And what he's trying to say is, in Israel, we've got all these Pharisees denouncing everything I do, not believing anything I'm doing. And here we have a Gentile dog, not only who is a Gentile dog, he's a representative of the hated Roman Empire who is oppressing the Jewish nation, and he believed in Jesus implicitly. Not only that, he was a soldier. And as Adam Clark points out, the military life is one of the most improper nurses for the Christian religion. Improper nurseries, I think is what he meant to say, or either I copied him wrong. And most improper nurseries for the Christian religion is the army, because, you know, soldiers are not noted for being very spiritual. They're usually pretty rough and pretty profane. So this was quite a uh, quite an interesting guy, this centurion. Now, Jesus is so impressed with the faith, he then starts waxing eloquent about the coming kingdom. Matthew 8, verses 11 through 12. I tell you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the east and the west... This shows that it's not just Jews who are coming into the kingdom. Remember the context. It's a centurion, a Roman. And so Jesus is, and from the get-go, is emphasizing the universality of the gospel. It's not just for Jews. In this most Jewish of gospels, Matthew, Matthew emphasizes this. In fact, Matthew finishes up his gospel in chapter 28. 
when Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All the nations. Uh, Luke chapter 13 says this, And they will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. I'm not sure this is the same time that Jesus was teaching in Matthew 8 might have been. But the point is, is that a little detail is added here. East and west, north and south, from everywhere, from the four corners of the globe, from the four points of the compass, people are going to be coming into the kingdom. Jesus' prophecy was exactly true. There's over a billion Christians on this planet now. Now, this metaphor of eating, eating is something that is often talked about in the Old Testament. Moses ate with God up on Mount Sinai when he had fellowship with God. Remember, the angel of the Lord came and, and ate and had fellowship with the parents of Gideon. If you remember that story, eating is a symbol of fellowship. The Lord suffers when we eat with the Lord in the New Testament. So reclining at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a symbol of fellowship. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the patriarchs. They were the founders of the kingdom. The typical kingdom was the Old Testament kingdom of the Jews, of Israel. And the antitypical kingdom, the fulfillment of that kingdom, is the New Testament church, the kingdom of heaven. And so when Jesus is talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's talking about people coming into the church. He's not talking about people coming into a Jewish kingdom. I, if you're a dispensationalist and don't believe that, I'm so sorry. But that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about people coming into the church, north, south, east, and west. But the sons of the kingdom, that's referring to the, the Jews who, were, who had constituted the Jewish kingdom at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and all those guys. They're going to be thrown into the outer darkness. Why? Because they did not because they rejected Jesus, the Messiah. And in that place of outer darkness, they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Abraham is, symbolizes believers. Galatians 3, 9 then says, So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So the believers are going to be with Abraham in the kingdom of heaven. Abraham, of course, being the father Abraham for those who believe. Romans 4, Galatians 3. So the believers are going to be with Abraham, but the non-believers are going to be thrown out of the kingdom into the outer darkness. Now, the next question is, is what is that outer darkness? Well, if it's a symbol of hell, and many people think it is, the first thing you have to say is that the symbols for hell are not universally compatible because in some places the symbol of hell is Gehenna, where there's a bunch of fires that burn forever. Fire creates light. There's no, dark, there's no darkness when there's fire. And that doesn't bother me. I don't know exactly what hell's going to be like. Jesus used symbols. And uh, either outer darkness, that's pretty miserable, or fire, that's pretty miserable too. The point is, it's not going to be pleasant. The sons of the kingdom are going to be there, the Pharisees. He basically said, you guys are going to hell. Well, he wasn't talking to the Pharisees. He says, the Pharisees are going to hell. You're not, but they are. What about this weeping and gnashing of teeth? Well, there's some options on that. John Gill and Adam Clark say that this refers to the poor who gnash their teeth upon it being excluded from a banquet hall. Let me give you the quote from John Gill. The allusion in the text is to the customs of the ancients at their feasts and entertainments, which were commonly made in the evening when the hall or dining room in which they sat down was very much illuminated with lamps and torches, but without in the streets were entire darkness, and where were heard nothing but the cries of the poor for something to be given them, and of the persons that were turned out as unworthy guests, and the gnashing of their teeth, either with cold in winter nights or with indignation at their being kept out. Well, that's pretty good. Or, John Gill says, it could be that the demons, the Jews thought that demons in hell gnashed their teeth, and so they're going to be gnashing their teeth with their fellow demons. Or their, not their fellow demons, their associates, the demons. Either way, the imagery is pretty rich here. The, the way you want to avoid the outer darkness is you want to believe in Jesus. 
and reclined at the table with Abraham. Reclining, of course, is how they ate back then, by lying down. That's why they reclined. Before we leave this verse, I ought to mention that it could very well be the outer darkness refers to when the Pharisees and Sadducees were destroyed by the Romans in AD 70 when their kingdom was utterly destroyed. could very well be that. Let's go to Matthew chapter 8, verse 13. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Healed at a distance. Now, notice, it shall be done for you as you have believed, according to your faith. Not according to your righteousness and goodness, John Gill points out, but according to your faith. Now, I'd like to make a comment about that. There's nothing, in my opinion, that is more heinous or heinous as the word faith message. I've seen people get caught up in that thing. I know everything about it. I know the bad results from it. And I don't need John MacArthur or his buddy Phil, whatever his name is, Phil Johnson, telling me about how bad that movement is, or Justin Peters. I don't need that. I know how bad it is. But I will tell you this. The scripture says that healing, there is a correlation between healing and faith. The woman with the issue of blood, for example, it was done unto her according to her faith. Right here, the centurion is healed as you have believed. It shall be done for you as you have believed. Do you realize that the more you believe in Jesus, the more he does things for you? How about in Nazareth? They didn't believe, and so he didn't heal. Now, I realize that, that is, you can't be a monomaniac about this, a reductionist, and think that, that, that you reduce everything to how much faith you have, then you do end up in the word, word of faith error. But we can't throw out the scripture here. It was done unto that centurion as, you be, as, as he believed. So if you want Jesus to do a lot for you, develop your faith in him and trust in him. And that takes time. It takes discipline. It takes spiritual discipline. It takes going through trials. It takes a lot. It's not, he's not, it's not like a genie in the bottle religion like the faith people, the hyper faith people like to make it sometimes. But it's talking about a, a life of relationship with Jesus. The more you know him, the more you believe in, the more you believe in, the more he gives to you. Didn't he say with the measure when he was talking about uh, to the disciples in one place about spiritual riches? He said, the more you have, the more you're going to get. All right. I am returning now from my splice of Matthew 8 verses 5 through 13. And now I am going to take up Luke 7 verses 11 through 17, which is the story of the raising of of the widow of Nain's son from the dead. So let me read Luke chapter 7, 11 through 13. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, do not weep. And I think the first thing we need to say here is notice that. He had compassion on her. Jesus cared about people who were hurting and sick and sick and and grieving because of dead loved ones. And I think that so often that we get wrapped up in, shall we say, the theological discussions of what happened. We forget this is an entirely human scene. There was a lot of, there was a hurting woman out there. Especially when you consider this was her only son. She was a widow, so she had no son to support her and no husband to support her. She was facing a lifetime of hard, hard poverty. So this was, I'm sure she wasn't thinking of that at the time. 
she was thinking of the fact that she had lost her son, but even beyond losing her son, she had a hard life ahead of her, and Jesus felt com compassion for her. They were heading out of the city because the Jews buried their dead outside of their cities and cemeteries, shall we say, in the suburbs? Where did all the crowd come from that went into the city? That were coming out of the city. They were Paul, perhaps new pallbearers who were switched out who switched out the old pallbearers because it was such a long way to carry the deceased that it was tiresome. Could be because the Jews had this idea that the more mourners they hired, the more respect was given to the dead person and the family. And also it might have been, might, the crowd might have contained some common laborers who were working outside and they stopped work because it was to work when a funeral was going. Now where is Nain? Nain is about 20 miles directly southwest of Tiberias, which is the western coast of the Sea of Galilee. It was in Galilee. It was in the region of Galilee, and the reason that's important is later on we were that. Jesus' fame, because of raising up the sun, his fame spread all throughout Judea, which was much further south. So now Jesus is getting well-known all over it in Galilee, even though that's where his ministry started out. Now let's read. Luke 7, verses 14 through 17. Then he, Jesus, came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. That must have been quite a sight. And he presented him to his mother. He, Jesus, presented him, the son of the widow of Nain, presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet is risen among us, and God has visited his, visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Now, first of all, we notice that Jesus touched the open coffin, and the question might arise, hey, does that violate the rabbinic traditions to touch a coffin? Well, our rabbinic expert, John Gill, says no, that did not violate the rabbinic tr tradition. So Jesus wasn't trying to raise a controversy here. The Old Testament law said you couldn't touch a corpse or the bones of a dead man or a grave, and, and if you did, you would become unclean, but that wasn't the question here. The coffin was okay to touch. Jesus didn't need to touch the coffin to raise that boy. He was doing that to stop the procession so he could, so he could pray. Now, this resurrection of the dead, or resuscitation, if you'll put it that way, reminds one of what Paul said in Romans 4:17. God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Jesus hated death of all sorts, physical as well as spiritual. He liked to break up funeral proceedings. You recall the noisy funeral procession at the funeral of Jairus' daughter, the synagogue leader Jairus' daughter, and he raised that little girl up. And of course, you remember all the weeping and moaning and crying that was going on at the tomb of his friend Lazarus in Bethany in John 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus up, Jesus loved to break up funeral procession. Now, when that boy sat up, he was resuscitated, not resurrected. Resurrected means you receive your glorified body that will never die again. This boy received his natural body again, which was going to die again as he ran the course of his natural life. But when we are resurrected, we're not going to get our old broken down bodies again. We're going to get glorified bodies. I can't, I can't wait for that event. Now, you think, well, he's resuscitated. Where was he while he was in the funeral? Ah, oh, this brings me back to one of my favorite subjects, near-death experiences. I don't believe he was down there in, in Hades or Paradise or Tartarus or all these, these holding tank places that love to dream up with their dreamy imaginations. I believe he was within the presence of God the Father or the divine Jesus, if you 
those things, of course, are theologically over my head. But I don't. I believe he was in the conscious presence of God. You know, a lot of these near-death experiences, they say, Jesus said, okay, you've got a glimpse. have got to send you back. you still got work on earth to do. And they say, no, no, I don't want to go back. <laughs> That's probably what was happening with his son of the widow of Nain. He was in heaven saying, no, don't send me back down there, but... He's there now, so it doesn't mean he had to spend a few extra years on earth. I'm sure his life was changed. Now, this scripture here says that Jesus presented the boy to his mother. John Gill puts it this way. After he came off the bier, the deceased came off the bier by taking him by the hand and leading him to his mother and giving him up into her arms is what Jesus did, which makes it somewhat dramatic. Now, the people were saying that because of this resuscitation, that Jesus was a great prophet. They recognized Jesus to be the Messiah because people just don't ordinarily go around raising from the dead. Jesus himself didn't do it very often. I think I mentioned the only three cases. The daughter of the synagogue leader, Jairus, the son of the widow of, of Nain, and Lazarus. So this was a big miracle, and the people were quoting Deuteronomy 18:15 and 18, which every... Christians should know because it's referred to so often. Are you the prophet? People ask John the Baptist, the prophet. Well, the prophet was the prophet prophesied of by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 18. Let me read verse 15 first. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, says Moses, a prophet of thy brethren, like unto me, like unto Moses. Unto him you shall hearken. In other words, you're going to listen to this prophet. He's the Messiah. Verse 18, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren. This is God, Moses speaking for God. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. So this was a very well-known prophecy in Israel, and Jesus looked like he was fulfilling it, and as a matter of fact. He did fulfill it. I mentioned earlier that Jesus' fame is now reaching down south in Judea. As verse 17 says, this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. And so, even though this was up in Galilee, so Jesus is getting to be very famous now. In fact, too famous because now he's got to guard against being prematurely claimed as the king of Israel, thus perhaps starting a political revolution, which thus might get the Romans coming down on their head and which might end his training of the twelve for their future establishment of the church and thus short-circuiting his messianic call. We are now finished with chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. We will start in Luke chapter 7, verse 18, and go down to verse 35 as we discuss the communications between John the Baptist and Jesus' eulogy, eulogy of John the Baptist upon his demise, upon his execution by Herod Antipas. I hope you enjoyed this audio.